What did the Missouri Compromise have to do with states' rights? I thought it was all about slavery. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Wire there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's the best way to do it. You can purchase one or 20 of my classes there. That keeps this podcast free of charge. Plus, you get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you sign up. So it's a win-win. If you like the podcast, you'll love the content at McClanahan Academy. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review where you can, whether it's at Apple Podcasts. Even on Anchor.fm, you can go do that. On Spotify, you can leave a text review now, and I can put it up there and pin it so everybody can see it. So lots of great ways to, to uh, support the show. And again, send me those show requests. That does help. If you're on YouTube, also comment for the algorithm. All right. So let's uh, talk about the topic, and this is an interesting thing to me because um, I just had this class reading Thomas Jefferson at McClanahan Academy, and one of the letters I cover in that class is one of the more famous Jefferson letters. It's written in 1820, and it's about the Missouri uh, Compromise, Missouri Controversy at that time. And uh, Jefferson was, of course, completely against the prohibition on slavery in Missouri, not for the reasons that people think, but because... He was concerned that these prohibitions would actually deliver a death blow to the original Constitution. Now, he wrote that letter to John Holmes. John Holmes was eventually a United States Senator from Maine. John Holmes uh, was born in Massachusetts, lived all of his life in New England. And Holmes had sent Jefferson a letter uh, of a talk that he gave, a speech that he gave, uh, where he talked about why he opposed uh, the, the, the uh, prohibition on slavery in Missouri to his constituents. Now, John Holmes, again, is from Maine, or at least he lives in Maine. He's from Massachusetts. This is a New Englander giving this talk, this pamphlet, explaining why he doesn't support the prohibition of slavery in Missouri. And Jefferson responds, my sentiments are exactly in line with yours. So if you want to know why Jefferson was against the Missouri Compromise, you need to understand this particular document. Now, the reason I'm doing this today, of course, is that if you have never been to a McClanahan Academy class or gotten purchased one, anything like that, this is kind of how I do the class. So when I go through these letters and documents, I'm telling you what's happening here in a way from primary documents. Primary documents are so important as we study history. Too, many, too often, historians focus on secondary materials. Uh, that it becomes a long-running commentary on historiography, which means all the other books, and they comment on this person and that person and that person. Now, we do know historians will go out and read primary documents. That's important. But uh, we have to understand that these primary documents are the most important thing we can do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this letter because, again, this is 1820, This is New England, and this shows you a couple of things conclusively. Number one, 
that in 1820 there were still people in the United States, North and South, who believed in the original federal republic. It wasn't just the South, it wasn't New England wasn't against it, and that that was the dominant position in the United States in 1820, the federal republic. We have states that have powers. Also, what's interesting about this particular document, Holmes brings up treaties that were made and that the privileges and immunities of all the citizens of the United States would be respected and according to property. And this came out of the Louisiana Purchase, 1803, which was a huge portion of the Western Territory. So for Southerners, this is important, for Southerners to agree to the Missouri Compromise would mean that they were backtracking on a treaty that had been made in 1803. So who really was the aggressor here? Was it the South or was it the North when it came to this position of compromise and what would happen with the powers of the general government in the Western Territories? Who was in the wrong? That is a big issue because most people will say, well, the United States government could regulate slavery in the territories. That may be true, or it may not be true. It depends on how you look at the Constitution. But on the, uh, the other hand, there was a treaty, a treaty with the French and the Louisiana Purchase. And that treaty, and of course, the language of that treaty, would stipulate that Americans had the same privileges and immunities, didn't matter where they're coming from, into this Western territory for their property. Now, again, we can look in the 21st century and say slavery as property is wrong. But in 1803, in 1810, and 1820, it was a recognized uh, form of property in the United States. And so if you're looking at this thing from a legal position, Southerners actually had the strongest legal position here. Now, again, morally, and, and Holmes gets into this. He says, look, I, I despise slavery, but we have a union and we have powers, and we have a central government that doesn't have unlimited powers, and states have powers. And so if we're going to abide by the original Constitution, then we need to not have any restrictions on Missouri doing whatever it wants with its own domestic concerns. The United States government has no power over this issue. Right? This is important. Because if you understand these fundamental building blocks and the war and what happens in 1860... It's a complete distortion of the original Constitution, the original Federal Republic, and Lincoln is the bad guy. Lincoln is in the wrong. The entire Republican Party throughout the 1830s, 40s, and 50s was in the wrong when it came to this particular issue. Particularly in the Louisiana Purchase Territory, though you could say, well, the Mexican Session was different. Well, the Mexican Session was governed by popular sovereignty when it was brought into the Union, um, at least... Uh, after the, the treaty was signed. Now, um, if you look at the history of the United States, there had been no prohibition on slavery in, in the Western Territory at all, ever. Now, you can say, what about the, what about the Northwest Ordinance? Uh, originally, there was no prohibition there. It wasn't until the general government acted on it uh, through the, during the Congress under the Articles of Confederation that that happened. And you could say that in many ways, maybe the Congress overstepped its bounds in that particular issue, too. There was no power in the Articles of Confederation that gave the United States Congress that authority, but they did it anyways. And so this was always you know, Calhoun's position. Well, we know that the Constitution doesn't allow it, but the Constitution can be a paper tiger. I mean, there's really no, you can't, you can't stop the general government from doing something if you want to do it. I mean, in 1837, he said, look, we can pass an unconstitutional bank, an unconstitutional tariff, an unconstitutional whatever we want, we can abolish slavery if we want to, but nobody's willing to do it here. 
1837. So this is a fascinating argument, historical argument. What are the powers of the general government? What are the powers of the states? And here's a New Englander siding with what people would say this is the Southern position. It wasn't. This is the American position in 1820. Okay, so let me uh, go ahead and get into this letter. And it's John Holmes of the people of Maine, April 10th, 1820. He says, fellow citizens, he's writing from Washington, D.C. A representative, this is a pamphlet, that he, uh, like a public letter. Representatives, a representative of the people ought to generally to expect that his constituents would understand the reasons of his conduct from the arguments which each subject invites. Apologies or justifications are extraordinary efforts and calculated to excite suspicion. A premature defense betrays a conscientious, a consciousness, I'm sorry, of error or implies an indirect censure of those from, from whom we differ. With these impressions and a confidence of my rectitude of my intention, I have hitherto presented my official conduct to my constituents with the reasons only which arise from ordinary discussion. Presuming on the candor and intelligence of a generous and enlightened community I, to do justice to my measures and motives. So a long-winded way of saying, look, I'm going to tell you why I voted the way I did. I'm going to tell you why I support the things that I do. This is to my constituents. It's a public letter. This is important because people need to know why I voted the way I did, essentially. He says, it is with much hesitation and considerable reluctance that I have, in the present instance, been induced to deviate from my usual course. But in presenting this address to the people of Maine, I beg them fully to understand that no fear of their suspicion, doubt of their candor, nor consciousness of, my, of any error of my own has rendered it necessary for me to claim their attention. So he's saying, look, this is unusual for me to, to give this public letter, to tell you what I'm doing here, but, there's, so, but don't think it's because I did anything wrong. Yeah, I didn't do anything wrong in voting this way. I'm just telling you why I did, because this is such a big issue. There's so much excitement over it. In fact, people were talking about the breakup of the Union here in 1820. This is what Jefferson talked about, the fire bell in the night. If you go back and you get reading Thomas Jefferson in McClanahan Academy, this was the problem. There was, in Jefferson's mind, and even in Holmes's mind here, there was a faction that was betraying the original Constitution, and it was going to destroy the Union. And that's what Jefferson said. It wasn't the South. It was the North. It was the forces that were actually trying to make Maine, through the general government, a free state. Trying to force Maine into doing that. He says, Four of my colleagues and a majority of the whole delegation from Maine having differed from myself and Mr. Hill the Missouri question, and the compromise of it as finally adopted, have deemed it expedient to make an extraordinary appeal to their constituents. So the other people from Maine, the other delegations, four of his colleagues, of course this is in uh, you know, the, the colleague, the Maine delegation, uh, or in New England, and the whole delegation from Maine, having differed myself and Mr. Hill, the Missouri question. So uh, Holmes has a different opinion than New England here. But he's saying, this is why I'm telling you. They're trying to make a public appeal while I'm doing the same. He's saying, differing from the rest of the delegation with one exception, standing against such talents and numbers, who might urge their pretensions with a confidence which a majority inspires and popular excitement encourages, apprehending that a labored defense of their own course must, of necessity, operate as an attack upon mine, and understanding that the communication has been circulated into my own district to instruct my particular constituents, 
I am reluctantly compelled to offer to the people the reasons for my conduct and its effect upon the interests of the nation and the independence of Maine. This is an independence of Maine. He actually makes a point in this letter, this public letter, about Maine, that if the general government can do this to Missouri, what can it do to Maine? He draws a parallel between the two. So he's going to tell you, I know that this thing is circulating. All these people that were that voted the opposite way that I did, which was to allow Missouri in under its own reconnaissance. It could do whatever it wanted with its own constitution. He says, I know that New England delegation doesn't agree with this, but I'm going to tell you why it's important and why we should do it. He say, it will be recollected in the last Congress and before the attempt for the separation of Maine had commenced, the proposition to inhibit slavery in Missouri as a condition of her admission into the Union was discussed, and the restriction imposed in the House and rejected in the Senate. So, if you don't understand the Missouri Compromise, you get Maine and Missouri coming into states. Maine is a free state, Missouri is a slave state. Now, Maine had broken away from Massachusetts. Okay, so... Uh, Maine was, at this point, part of Massachusetts, and now it's broken away and became its own state. So it was kind of a secession of, from Massachusetts, but it had to have the approval of Congress. Um, so at that point, Maine hadn't broken away yet. And there was a, a point in Congress that they were going to try to prohibit slavery in Missouri. The Congress was going to do it. It was passed in the House, but rejected in the Senate. He says, at that time, upon mature reflection and without the aid of popular excitement, I was compelled to the conclusion that the restriction could not be imposed. He was against it. He said, there's no excitement here. And this opinion was expressed in the House of Representatives and went to the public through the medium of the newspapers. Since that time, I have been called by my constituents to important public duties, wherein the rights and liberties of the people were intimately concerned have acted with the most intelligent citizens of all classes and from all sections of Maine. And to my recollection, not one word of doubt, distrust, or regret was ever expressed to me for the vote I had given. Until the commencement of this session of Congress, the people of the United States appeared disposed to submit the question to the uninfluenced decision of the only constitutional tribunal. And until the circulars from New York had been obtruded upon the citizens of Maine, they had never felt an excitement nor entertained a thought of becoming parties to the discussion. So people were just going to let this be. Who's causing the problems here? New York. Who's causing the problems here? Not the people of Maine, not the people of New England, but New York, right? Now it was, I mean, if you know the history of this, it was a representative from New York who started all this stuff, right? So who's really in the wrong here? It's not the South. They didn't do anything. It's New York. He said, with a solitary exception, limited in its numbers, I had not, during this protracted discussion, for my constituents or the people of Maine, any instruction urging or requiring that my course should be different from what it had been. I've not been told otherwise. Nobody's told me I should do something different. Nobody in Maine, nobody anywhere else. On the contrary, the tenor of my communications from gentlemen of the first political standing in the state was in perfect accordance with my own opinion. It would surely be paying a poor compliment to the people of Maine to imagine for a moment that they would wish or expect that a representative should yield to their opinions on a constitutional question at the expense of his conscience and in violation of his oath. A high-minded, honorable, generous, and free people would pity and despise the man who should sacrifice his duty to popular feeling 
or artificial excitement. Artificial excitement. He's saying there's nothing going on here. This is a false excitement. This is a false issue. This isn't even really an issue at all. The states have powers, and this is perfectly under the purview of the states. The general government can't do anything about this. Now, you would think this is coming from a southerner in 1820, but it's not. It's coming from a representative of Maine, a senator of Maine. Believing, as I most sincerely did, that the political right of regulating the condition of master and slave belong exclusively to the people of Missouri, I was constrained to refuse to Congress the exercise of a municipal power, a municipal power, an extent unlimited, and an operation dangerous and destructive to the sovereignty of the states. What a great quote. So he's saying, look, if I voted the other way, I would violate principles and the Constitution. Believing, as I most sincerely did, that the political right of regulating the condition of master and slave belonged exclusively to the people of Missouri, as it did to the people of Maine, or the people of Massachusetts, or the people of Virginia, or the people of South Carolina, I was constrained to refuse to Congress the exercise of a municipal power. Now, does Congress have any municipal powers? This is the big question, do they? And what are those municipal powers? We know that they have... In the Constitution, it talks about they have jurisdiction, which would seem to be municipal powers over the forts, dockyards, harbors, these kind of things, whatever public property they have, and of course, Washington, D.C. But are those municipal powers confined within the powers of the Constitution? But he's saying if they do this, its extent would be unlimited. Unlimited. There will be no limits on the municipal power now. And an operation dangerous and destructive to the sovereignty of the states. Now, that is an amazing statement. Again, coming from a New Englander in 1820. Not someone in South Carolina. Not someone in Virginia. Not someone anywhere else. Not in, you know North Carolina. Not Kentucky. This is... A New Englander in 1820 making this statement. An amazing statement. So Holmes continues, For 17 years, the right to hold slaves in Missouri has been recognized and confirmed. The lands there were purchased from a common fund. A common fund. All the states paid for it. Not just the North. Not just the non-slaveholding states, but all the states. And the right of the slaveholder to emigrate, settle, and cultivate them was coordinate with with that of the rest of the people. Parts of this same territory have been incorporated into three different states. He's talking, of course, about three southern states, but three states, and each of which has this right has been conceded. The Treaty of Session was imperative. The terms were palpable, explicit, and unequivocal. The most ingenious dissertations, to the contrary, were but a manifest perversion of a plain common sense meaning, which it was impossible to mistake. Thus did the Constitution, the treaty, and our own plighted faith for a bid us to impose this restriction upon Missouri. The Treaty of Session, as it points out, and I mean, the Treaty of Session was clear. This was the common territory, the common property, and everyone had access to it in the United States. There was no prohibition on any state or any person from any state living and settling in these areas with whatever property they wanted to bring. So again, 21st century, we can consider this to be uh, an immoral thing. But in 1820, It was recognized in the United States. But had this power existed, the effect of the experiment was doubtful and dangerous. 
So had the power existed, putting restrictions on the people of Missouri as a state to have slavery. He says the effect of the experiment was doubtful and dangerous. Since the year 1808, Congress has been laudably engaged in prohibiting the importation of slaves. So here he goes into his, his anti-slavery bona fides. He said, look, this is laudable. We've been prohibiting slavery. Laws have been enacted, amended and improved. Punishments have been augmented and enforced. And the Navy of the United States has been put in requisition to arrest the violators of the laws. The gentlemen from the slaveholding states with a zeal, which is a pledge of their sincerity, have ever been foremost to provide for detecting the offender and bringing him to justice. A common sentiment of indignation and abhorrence at the slave trade was beginning to prevail, and a correspondent feeling of humanity towards those already here was inculcated and extended. Inculcated, I'm sorry, and extended. Experience had proved that to confine great numbers of slaves to a single owner, unable to afford them his personal protection, would expose them to the cruelty of overseers and other distresses. The constant immigration of free persons without their slaves would increase the evil exposed to danger those who remain. This is where Jefferson gets into his policy of diffusion, and Holmes agrees, right? These two men, again, are in complete agreement on this. Jefferson's position was always diffusion. You send slaves out west, it lessens their number in the east, and it makes the institution uh, go away eventually. I mean, you're not really extending slavery. You're just taking a slave from one place to another. It's not extending it at all. It's not adding to it. It's taking it out of here and putting it here in terms of the institution of slavery, right? So you're taking a slave from here and putting a slave here. So that is where um, the argument of diffusion was uh, something that Jefferson believed. Now, you can say that's not true, that you do extend it. I mean, we could have an argument, we could have a discussion about this. And does it really extend slavery? Does it not extend slavery? Um, I mean, how does that work? To permit the slaveholders to emigrate to Missouri with their slaves would be to disperse, but not to increase them. Distributed into the hands of more masters, they would be more intimately connected with their families, become the objects of their affection, and of their moral and religious instruction. Shall then the slaves now in the United States be confined to the slaveholding states or be permitted to be carried to Missouri? This is the Missouri question, so much spoken of and so little understood. Not whether more slaves shall be admitted to the United States. Against this, every hand is raised. Not whether slavery is an evil. All agree that it is a most afflicting, a most dangerous evil. Not whether it ought to be abolished, but what are our constitutional means to remove this evil without inflicting a greater? So this is his question. So he doesn't like it. It's an evil. It has to go away. We have to get rid of it. What are the means? What are the constitutional means of getting rid of the institution? How do we deal with this? These are questions on which men may honestly differ. The best feelings of the human heart are instantly enlightened, I'm sorry, enlisted in favor of any measure whose professed object is liberty to the slave. Without regarding its tendency or effect, humanity exhorts an opinion which pride forbids us to retract. So anyone should say that we want to have liberty. We want to eventually get to a point that we have liberty for slaves. But how are we going to do it legally, constitutionally, and morally? This is Jefferson's statement, the wolf by the ears. How are we going to do this in a way that's not going to create Haiti, for example, or create uh, you know, a, a massive race war in the United States. These people were concerned about that. They were looking around the world and they were saying, seeing that in areas that um, 
had immediate emancipation or immediate abolition, this could be a real problem. And you could get some pretty nasty episodes. Born and nurtured in a land of liberty, habitually entertaining an utter abhorrence of slavery in whatever disguise, witnessing, as I, very, as I verily believe, the happy moralizing influence of universal freedom, experiencing, moreover, the voluntary tribute of affection from freemen, which I am always proud to reciprocate, I seized with ardent partiality the proposed restriction, examined it with confident hope, and to my utter disappointment and regret was compelled to condemn it as unconstitutional, inexpedient, and dangerous. So he's saying, look, I come from a place where I love freedom. I love being from a non-slaveholding state. I love all this has, but I looked at what was proposed, and initially I was for it, and then, with regret, compelled to condemn it as unconstitutional, inexpedient, and dangerous. Why? Why? This is the big question. And it's dangerous to Maine, not just to Missouri or some other state. It's dangerous to the existing states to do this. And he explains, he says, the Constitution of the United States was a compromise of conflicting rights and interests. This having recognized the right of any state to its slaves and the treaty of session and the laws and the territory having established and confirmed it to Missouri, the people there complained of the interference of Congress and their internal concerns. Strong as were my impressions against slavery, the right of a people to manage their own affairs in their own way had been too lately exercised by the citizens of Maine to escape my recollection. The attempt of Massachusetts to prescribe to us our duties in regard to Bowdoin College was not forgotten. The indignation felt at this officious interference and the very great unanimity with, with which we, by a constitutional act, withheld all endowment from the institution until it should renounce the odious provision were strong and impressive proofs of our principles and gave an assurance that we were too magnanimous to impose a Missouri on Missouri a restraint which had, we had so recently emphatically and indignantly rejected. So here you have a situation where you have a, a financial spat with Massachusetts, and Massachusetts was trying to impose its will on Maine, and Maine said, no, a state cannot do that in our own internal concerns. And what would we be doing in Maine if we did the exact same thing to Missouri? We recognized in Maine that you can't do this. We recognize in Maine that this would be unconstitutional, and yet what are we trying to do in Missouri? Why would we do this? We have a compact between states, in essence. Sovereignty, state sovereignty is, a, is, a threat, is threatened here by the action of the other states against Maine. We can't do that. The Senate of the United States, by a decisive vote, had rejected the restriction, which the House had, by a small majority, imposed. By this, by this disagreement of the two houses, the admission of Missouri had been delayed from the last session, the public feeling was greatly excited, and a geographical division of parties was forming, which threatened danger if not dissolution to the Union. Again, this is where Jefferson was worried about what was going to happen. But why? It's not because of New England. It's because of some people that were doing things that were unconstitutional in his mind. Meanwhile, slaves might be admitted into all of our territories, and the evil we are supposed could not be restrained. The North and East were to be arrayed against the South and West. Mutual animosities were fomented, recriminations reiterated, parties rallying and leaders presenting themselves to marshal and conduct these parties to the field. So we had sections being created at this point because of this, because of some malcontents essentially in New York, which is where he's pointing back to. The Friends of the Republic began to perceive that the Union was in danger 
and that another year's delay would impair, if not dissolve it. The contest was approaching a crisis, and a compromise was the only remaining resort, the last hope for the restoration of tranquility. He says, To this there seemed an inseparable objection. A bill for the admission of Maine into the Union had passed the House early in the session, and then the Senate had been united for, with that for the admission of Missouri. The Union had been resisted in the House as unprecedented and improper. The discussion which these subjects thus united necessarily involved had increased the excitement and widened the breach between the parties. The liberal course of some gentlemen from the North and the evidence exhibited that Maine, when admitted, would not be disposed to combine to enforce the proposed restriction, had induced several members of the Senate to relax and to consent that Maine should be admitted alone. These, with the minority originally against the union of the two subjects, would have secured a separate admission of Maine. But the doctrines advanced by a senator in the second debate and echoed in the House, the avowal that it, the avowal that it was a contest for political power and the consequent excitement and alarm determined that the majority to insist that both or neither should be admitted. So it became about power, right? That was the whole point of this. It was about power. And um, this was Rufus King making this point. Rufus King, who was a secessionist. <laughs> Rufus King was a secessionist. And so now it had to be both, but not one or the other. right? And Rufus King here is in an interesting position. Right? This came down to power. In this state of irritation, committees of conferences were appointed. The members on the part of the Senate were, and he goes through this whole thing. And then he tells you what the compromise was. A compromise was proposed that Maine should be admitted separately, Missouri without restriction, and that slavery should be inhibited on all the territory north of 36 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude. To the principles of this compromise, the Senate's committee and all those of the House except Mr. Taylor agreed. The time and manner of executing the compromise occasioned considerable discussion. The committee of the Senate whose numbers were sufficient to effect a separation of Missouri from Maine by uniting with those who had opposed their union, offered the, their pledge that if the compromise were effectuated in the House, Maine should be admitted unconnected. We objected and insisted that Maine must be first admitted. The Senate's committee would have consented to this could we have made a similar pledge in regard to Missouri. Thus we could not do, and we were about to separate on a point of etiquette which could be safely yielded by the House but not by the Senate. The peace of the Union, as well as the admission of Maine, was involved in it, and at last a majority of the committee of the House, Mr. Taylor descending to the principles and Mr. Parker to the forum, consented that separate and similar reports should be presented in both branches and each acted on without any stipulation in regard to priority. The compromise was agreed to, the bills have passed, and the subject is at rest. The restricted territory equal to that of all the original states, being unsold and uninhabited, was not subject to the constitutional objection. Maine was admitted into the Union, the slaveholding states obtained a southern latitude for themselves and their states, and the North, an exclusion of slavery from an immense territory sufficient for all their purposes of emigration. The probability that for a long time the non-slaveholding states will have a majority in the House and the slaveholding states in the Senate affords each party a security that the compromise will be permanent. So what was this about? Power. Rufus King was exactly right. It's about power. So, We've got all this territory, larger than what was the original states, that we can go move into without slaves. And the South gets a slaveholding state, and they can control the Senate, essentially. And that's they can, they can protect themselves from the North. And this was not just about slavery. It was about political economy, and people miss that all the time. 
He says, in reflecting upon the conduct of the people of Maine during this interesting and arduous struggle, it affords me high satisfaction, reminds me of the virtues of the past, and presents a, a secure pledge for the wisdom of the future. Just emerging from colonial dependence, commencing a career of policy, and establishing her character with her sister states, it became her to avoid sectional contests, to solicit the favor and friendship of all, and to exhibit a policy at once national, liberal, and just. Notice what he says here. This is a national policy to do this. It's in the interest of the nation of the Union, to compromise here. He says, When the tempest of war assailed us, when discord, distrust, and dissatisfaction prevailed, when the hopes of the enemies of freedom were exalted, and the face of the patriot wore paleness and dismay, Maine was firm, confident, and unshaken. At this time, with present prospects and undiminished fidelity to the Union, was it expected that she would combine to produce a geographical division of party? Could she have wished that a representative should have persisted in a restriction which they could not enforce at the expense of the independence of Maine, the harmony of the nation, and the safety of the Union? A political combination of the discordant materials of the North to overbalance the slaveholding states promises but little to the harmony and prosperity of the nation. From this, what political or moral benefit would result? Would a Northern party, marked by geographical lines in which all others might be absorbed, produce an amalgamation, very congenial with the feelings and wishes of Maine? So would this sectional party be in the best interest of Maine? He wonders out loud here, what would be the point of all this? And who are the men against whom you are called to unite? Who are these people that you were supposed to unite against? Republicans, honorable and patriotic, brethren, sympathizing and affectionate, who you have fought by your side, and triumph with you in your country's cause. Your interests and prospects imperatively require you to discountenance and resist every attempt to excite local jealousies. Young, enterprising, and industrious, you will need the aid and friendship of the slaveholding states. Your navigation, commerce, fisheries, and manufacturers must be cherished and improved. Protection to these is generally taxation upon their products of agriculture. Well, this is a really interesting argument. You're going to need these people because... They pay a lot of money in taxes. On these subjects, they have hitherto been liberal and magnanimous, but engage in this crusade against them, compel them to unite only on the subject to which their safety is exclusively concerned, combine against them it is an affair, and an affair so critical and delicate as the management of their slaves, and you poke, provoke, I'm sorry, hostility at once destructive of your own interest and the safety of the nation. So he is saying that slavery, as you're looking at this as a moral situation, this is going to be a big issue. But there's so many things going on here, and it is the power of the states that's key, right? This attempt was most alarming to the slaveholding states. We who know nothing of slaves can have no correct conception of the excitement which the agitation of this question must naturally produce. Whatever may be imagined, the masters have a strong attachment to their slaves, so jealous are they of any attempt to infringe their rights to the species of property that to agitate the question produces the keenest sensibility. Any indication of a wish to emancipate them endangers the master and subjects the slave to more, a more rigorous discipline. The slaveholding state would combine and resist every attempt of ours at emancipation. Should we hereafter persist in provoking a union of these states, the parties would take their stand with all the inveterate obstinacy with a deep sense of wrong on the one hand and a zeal for humanity on the other, would inculcate, instead of a, com a competition and acts, acts of kindness and magnanimity, instead of an honorable emulation and feelings and duties, a forbearance and charity, 
Instead of patriotic struggles for the safety, prosperity, and glory of the nation, we should be engaged in the unprofitable and fatal strife of inflicting and reta uh, retaliating injuries, provoking jealousies and deadly hate. Throwing obstacles and stumbling blocks in the way of each other's prosperity and happiness, and at last consummate the hopes of tyrants by destroying the Union and prostrating in the dust the Temple of Liberty. So he's saying, look, if we continue to do this, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, we're going to have a civil war. And again, this would, this would actually support the thesis that slavery was the question. It was a moral question here. I mean, Holmes is kind of making that argument. It's a moral question. He's called it the Missouri question. But at the bottom of this, he says, we don't want Maine governed by other states. We don't want Missouri governed by other states. This is the real issue here. This is what Jefferson said. You know, this, is, this is a point. This is, I'm in complete agreement with you. He says, reviewing, however, my course, since the question has been decided, I find no cause of regret. The framers of the Constitution were obliged to yield much for the sake of union. The great Washington has told us that such concessions are necessary to preserve it. Those who apprehended that slavery would be extended over the immeasurable West will derive consolation that it is from thence excluded and that settlements will be commenced and continued by people who will never after consent to establish it. Those who claim the territory is a common property for a common retreat will be satisfied with the reflection that though their portion is small, it is populous and valuable and that they are excluded from a latitude where slaves could never be properly employed. Those who saw in this contest an approaching storm with devastation and ruin in its wake may rejoice with joy unspeakable that his fury is assuaged, its clouds are scattering, and the sun of harmony is rising with healing in his wings and majesty in his beams. So, again, a nice letter that explains Holmes's position in saying we can't, we can't dictate to, to Missouri what it's going to do. This would be an infringement on the sovereignty of the states. He begins with that. He does point out that this is a, a false issue. There's really nothing going on here. Um, in his mind, in 1820, that slavery should be left alone in the in the interest of the Union. It's amazing how these arguments, you know, who said what at this time period. So um, I wanted to get this letter out because I think that it's important to understand that this issue of Missouri and the sectional controversy was very complex, as John Holmes puts this, and that it wasn't necessarily the South that was ever really agitating this issue. It was the North, at least initially. And uh, I think that's, again, when you look at these primary documents and why they're so important, uh, when we do that as historians, you get a fuller understanding of the issues at, at hand. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.